I can think about one movie that has just about everything in it. It'll make you laugh. It'll make Dan cry, I assume. <laughs> it's really quotable. It has comedy. It has drama. It has an underdog you can't help but root for. It deals with family trauma, with drug abuse, with mental health issues, with overcoming disabilities. It's a story of friendship. It has history. It has the Vietnam War. It has America versus China. It has Bear Bryant and Alabama football winning a national championship. Roll Tide. But even with all of that, it's primarily a romance film. Any of you know what I'm talking about? Forrest Gump. It focuses on Forrest, who has an intellectual disability and yet is involved and is often the cause of like a hundred different cultural or historical moments and events. And then Jenny, the only kid to befriend him on his first day of school, whose life goes from one trauma to the next, from one bad decision to the next. I'm not recommending the movie, especially for kids. As I just listed, there's a lot of heavy, hard things there. But I am commenting on it, and I think we can learn from it. But in the movie, one night after getting in a fight to protect her honor, to defend Jenny, she tells Forrest, you can't keep doing this all the time. He says, I can't help it. I love you. She says, Forrest, you don't know what love is. And then you see her depressed and suicidal, telling Forrest to stay away from her. Sometime later, she comes back to Forrest's house because she has nowhere to go. And after some time together, they're doing normal activities. One night, they're watching TV, and as she's walking to bed, he says, Will you marry me? I'd make a good husband, Jenny. He said, You would, Forrest. But you won't marry me? You don't want to marry me. Why don't you love me, Jenny? I'm not a smart man, but I do know what love is. Part of what's ironic is that he does know what love is, and he's been loving her throughout the entire film. Before, she hadn't seen it, and now that she does, she doesn't think she's worth it. I think we can be a lot like that with the love of God. We can take his love for granted, often telling him by our actions to stay away, that we want to live our own lives as we chase after other things. And then if or when we hit rock bottom, when we recognize the things that we have done, we think it's too late. We've heard how great his love is, but we doubt that it's really enough to go to the depths of our brokenness and the depths of our sin. We hold on to this little inclination in us that says, there's no way he really still loves me. There's no way he wants to be with me. He doesn't really want me. But maybe we don't know what love is and how far it goes. Let's look this morning at the lengths to which the love of God goes after his people. Hear God's word through Hosea in chapter 3. And the Lord said to me, Go again, 
Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your love toward us. We ask that you would help us this morning as we look at your word, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see your goodness, your love for us. Work in us by your spirit. Sanctify us that we may know you, that we may seek you and come after you because you have come after us. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Welcome. If you're just now joining us, we're continuing on in, our, in the book of Hosea as we're preaching through that this fall. And we're looking at the third chapter today, which kind of wraps up the kind of historical aspect of Hosea's marriage, this kind of biopic into his life that serves as a parable for what is happening with the Lord and with Israel. We saw in chapter one, God called Hosea to marry a woman who would commit adultery or more intensely, as we keep hearing it, whoredom. Because this is what Israel has done. They have forsaken the Lord their God. They have gone after other gods. So Hosea's marriage is picturing this. Then Gomer has children, all named for specific things. Jezreel means Israel's might will fall. No mercy means God will not show mercy to them. Not my people. It's kind of this... Uh, reversal of covenantal language where he says you will be my people and I will be your God now he says you are not my people and I am not your God so through that we've seen this emotional language we see the pain of a wounded husband but right at the end of that chapter there's this shift in this promise of restoration that despite the adultery God still loves his people he still loves his bride And in chapter 2, it's even heightened more. It's all this poetry of what God's going to do and what's going on. And so now we come to the third chapter here, kind of the close, the rest of the story with Hosea and his marriage. And so it shifts back to prose. It's told more matter-of-factly, which word processor tells me is not a word. But But what we're going to see this morning is that in the end, God will not abandon his bride despite her idolatry. Instead, his love chases her. It chastens her. And finally, it changes her. God will not abandon his bride, despite her adultery. Instead, his love chases her. With me at verse 1. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. The woman isn't mentioned by name, so some say it's a different woman, but I think it makes the most sense that it's still Gomer, 
This idea of going again, calls her an adulteress, implies she's married, pictures Israel, God being faithful despite that. So God tells Hosea, go again, love her. Despite the fact that she's with another man even now, it's crazy that he chases her. He goes after her again, knowing that he will be confronted by her lover. Knowing that he will be confronted with her adultery. I mean, at best, what we might expect is wait for her. If she comes back to you, forgive her. That's extreme enough, isn't it? To forgive past adultery. But that's not what God calls Hosea to do because that's not what God does with his bride, with his people. Because of his love for them, he goes after them. He chases after them while they're in the midst of cheating on him. You can see a bit of the character of God's love and their adultery at the end of verse 1. It says, even as Yahweh loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins, God still loves and chases after his people, though they're worshiping other gods and love cakes of raisins. Hopefully cakes of raisins kind of sticks out to you. Like, what is that doing there? Right? It's kind of the point. The contrast is crazy. Yahweh loves his bride. His bride loves raisin cakes. That's what it says. It's preposterous. Now there's probably an association with the cultic rite there with some of this idol worship, but it's broader than that as well. It's this idea of it's a delicacy. It's what David offered as they were moving the ark as well. It's this rich food that it's pleasure. It's what they can experience with their senses. It's what's fleeting. It's like children that will throw a fit and forsake their parents for a piece of candy or another toy. Though you've raised them, you've provided everything for them, you've protected them. Yet in that moment, candy is everything and you are nothing. That's how we are with the Lord. Yahweh loves his bride. His bride loves pleasure, not her husband. Doesn't even love these false gods. That's what we see with Gomer too, isn't it? She, she plays the whore. She doesn't even love these other men. She's loved by them, but does not love them. She just goes to them for these fleeting pleasures that do not satisfy, but only leave her wanting more. And my focus this morning is on the character of God's love toward us not on our idolatry itself. But this does beg the question for us as we think about this candy or these raisin cakes. We have to ask, what might our raisin cakes be? What do we truly love in place of God? A couple diagnostic questions you can ask. Or what do I spend my time, my money, and my energy on? And why? There might be good reasons that glorify God in them, but there might not. Or what is it that really frustrates me or gives me anxiety if it's threatened? What am I trusting in and going after? Those might be those things. 
So let's look back at where these raisin cakes leave us, where Gomer's whoredom leaves her. Look at verse 2. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. It leaves her indentured to her lusts. Right? She goes to these men for freedom and pleasure, but she ends up a slave. And we don't know who Hosea pays or why, whether she's literally a slave, whether he's paying her pimp so she can be free, whether it's her boyfriend and he loves her 15 shekels and some barley's worth. We don't know. The point is that because God loves her, he chases after her and he does what is necessary to redeem her. This is where I'm supposed to jump to Jesus buys us back, right? I'm not going to do that for you. He does. But what's interesting about this is that price is actually relatively low. It says you're not worth that much. She has forsaken what matters to pursue empty pleasures only to be cheaply cast aside by them. What she has sacrificed and given everything up for doesn't even care to have her. That's how our raisin cakes are as well. They cannot satisfy. But our God, the only one who can truly satisfy, he loves us. He chases after us even when we are in the arms of other lovers. And he does what needs to be done to set us free. God will not abandon his bride. Instead, his love chases her. And after it chases her, it chastens her. Look with me at verse 3. And I said to her, you must dwell many days, dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. In Hebrew, another isn't there. He's saying you won't be having intercourse with anyone, even me, for many days. Because he loves her and not what he can get from her. Hosea chastens his wife by making her and himself chaste. The thing she broke the marriage covenant with is disallowed, even with her husband. She loves sex, not her husband. So even sex with her husband, which is a covenant blessing, is removed for many days. Again, Hosea's picture, marriage pictures Israel. Look at verse 4. The children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. They will go without, without, without. It's said three times in English. It's five times in Hebrew. They will go without. In love, God chastens his people by stripping away what they cling to. He strips away what they love because it's not good for them. So Israel will lose her sovereignty. She will lose her king and prince. And they will lose their places of idolatry. Both what is idolatrous in and of itself, the pillars that were set up and the household gods, as well as um, legitimate things that God has given them, what's intended for proper worship, but they have adulterated and misused, such as sacrifice and ephod. 
For Israel, this is going to mean defeat and captivity by the Assyrians. In a sense, God is sending them to rehab. His people are addicted to these things that are enslaving them. And he loves them too much to allow that to continue. They need to detox, to get sober so that they can see reality. It's not going to feel good, but it's going to be good for them. People that are in recovery are typically told not to start a dating relationship within at least the first year of recovery. And there are multiple reasons for this, but one of which is that we can transfer this kind of addiction from drugs or alcohol onto a relationship. We just slide it over. It doesn't actually deal with the issue. Instead of being preoccupied by drugs or alcohol, you're preoccupied with the man or woman you're dating. You get the same chemical boost even in your brain as you do from the others. Then you're more likely to relapse when or if things go poorly. I think this is part of the idea of why God is removing these things for many days. He doesn't want his bride to jump right back in with the blessings he's given her because he wants her to love him, not what he gives her. He wants her to have what she truly needs and not merely what he can offer her. If we're honest, sometimes I think we turn to God for what we can get from him or at least what we think we can. If you've ever bargained with God, you realize that you're doing it there. Instead of turning to God because we love him. Just for one example, we love the idea of being saved in our lives, getting better. Right? How often do we hear that, this version of Christianity where God's going to solve our problems, where our lives get easier. If you have come to Christ for that, I'm afraid you're going to be disappointed. Usually, following Jesus means that our lives are going to get harder. That's what it means to follow a suffering Savior. The Christian life is not all rainbows and butterflies. Our problems don't go away. But it's better. Because we have him and we know that he has us. The one who made us. The one who loves us. The one who is orchestrating all of history for our good and who one day will return and set all things right. We are safe in him no matter what happens. As we think about what this chastening means for us, we do need to take into account that we're in a different time in redemptive history. What was played out in Hosea's marriage and foretold here applies to Israel uniquely, as God's people were this nation, not a spiritual people that transcends borders and ethnic lines as it does today. Today, the church may go through many different circumstances, different times of favor or persecution with governing authorities, different aspects of that, depending on what country you're in and where you are. But we will never go without our king. We will never go without the prince of peace. We will never go without our great high priest who offered himself a once-for-all sacrifice to satisfy 
divine justice on our behalf. We will never go without his Holy Spirit that has been poured out on us. But with that, we also know that God never changes, that he perfectly loves us and gives us what we need as well. And when we need it, God, in God's love, he still chastens us. Hebrews 12 says that the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives and that he disciplines us for our good so that we might share in his holiness. And the author writes, For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. We must recognize that we act in many ways like Israel. And like them, God's love chastens us for our good. As a good parent disciplines a child, not merely to make them pay or show them who's in charge, but out of love in order to instruct them, in order to build godly character in them for their good. And we don't have a prophet coming to us now to interpret these things and to tell us what God's disciplining us for and what isn't discipline. Think of a story in Luke 13. Jesus says that a tower fell on 18 people and he says, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others? He says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you likewise will perish. We don't know exactly why certain things happen. Even if we could, we probably couldn't comprehend how intricately it's woven with everything else. But I think it's foolish to claim to do so. That's what Job's friends did. Right? But we can trust God knowing that he is good, that he is in control, and that he loves us. And we can take the opportunity whenever these things happen in our lives, whenever we lose something we care about, whenever we feel threatened, not to assume we're being punished, but as an opportunity to evaluate our lives and see where we do need to repent. If we have lost something, God is still in control and still working it out for our good and for his glory. God will not abandon his bride. Instead, his love chases her and it chastens her. And in the end, it will not leave her as she is, but it also changes her. Look with me at verse 5. It says, Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. So after this period of chastening, the people of Israel will change course. They will return, which is the same Hebrew word as repent. They'll turn back and seek the Lord their God. Now they will be going to him for himself and not merely what he gives them. They will seek after David, their king, meaning their repentance will go back further than even these last few years to the 200 years before this when they divided from the southern kingdom of Judah in rejecting the Davidic king. Their returning, their repenting will be utterly thorough. And we see why in the second half of the verse... And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Fear is this idea of being overwhelmed, even trembling. 
It can mean being terrified like my daughter Lucy. When a dog comes close to her, she clenches up and is shaking because she thinks it's going to eat her. But it can also be like a groom who is weak at his knees, shaking, being overcome by love and joy as he sees his bride walking down the aisle. The character of the fear depends on the object of the fear. The object here is the Lord and his goodness. His goodness toward his people does not terrify, but overwhelms us with love and joy. A great little book that helps us think about this is uh, Michael Reeves' What Does It Mean to Fear the Lord? He writes in it, It is the devil's work to promote a fear of God that makes people afraid of God such that they want to flee from him. The Spirit's work is the exact opposite, to produce in us a wonderful fear that wins us and draws us to God. True fear of God is true love for God defined. The biblical theme of the fear of God helps us to see the sort of love toward God that is fitting. It shows us that God does not want passionless performance or a vague preference for him. To encounter the living God truly means that we cannot contain ourselves. He is not a truth to be known unaffectedly or a good to be received listlessly. Seeing clearly the dazzling beauty and splendor of God must cause our hearts to quake. That's what it means to fear the Lord, to fear his goodness, to be overwhelmed by it. When we see God for who he is, it changes us. His love changes all who truly encounter it, all who truly see it. Not in a forceful way. God doesn't force us to love him back. He doesn't make us prisoners and say, you're going to love me every day until we finally do. Instead, he strips away all the distractions, all the trinkets of false gods and pleasure and success so we can actually see him and his goodness for what his love is. When we truly encounter the radiance of the beauty of God's goodness and love, it's like seeing an 80-inch 4K TV and we're seeing the New Zealand landscape from Lord of the Rings with over 8 million pixels and over a billion shades of color. And knowing that our former passions and pursuits and loves are revealed as less than a picture on a black and white TV from the 50s. Once we've seen it, we can't go back. His love draws us in. It changes us. There is no substitute. In love, he chases and chastens his bride, not to get back at them or to make them pay, but to remove the scales from their eyes so they can truly see him. His love will change them so that they will love him the source of all beauty, goodness, and truth. Where else would we go? Hosea says this will happen in the latter days. We live in the latter days. Where great David's greater son 
Jesus Christ to whom this verse is referencing. Israel never returned to a different Davidic king. It's talking about Jesus. To whom this verse is referencing. He has conquered sin and death. He is reigning in heaven right now and he will come again and his marriage will be consummated. God has shown us his goodness in the face of his son, Jesus Christ, who loves us, who chased after us by leaving heaven and becoming a man to save his people, who offered himself up on the cross as a sacrifice to satisfy God's wrath so that he might chasten us as sons and not discipline us and punish us as enemies. He changes us. He gives us ears to hear and eyes to see. He pours out his spirit on us. And we can turn to him by that spirit. And we can see him for who he is. May we know the depths of his redeeming love. May we love him because he has loved us. Let us see this example from Hosea and let us heed its instruction that we can learn from it without needing to be chastened ourselves. That we would heed our Father's warning not to put our hand in the fire instead of needing to learn the lesson by being lovingly burned. May we know his love that chases us that chastens us, and that changes us. And may we turn away from false gods and vain pursuits and seek Christ, the Son of David, being overwhelmed by love and joy because of his goodness toward us.